Do any of you know any supremely picky eaters? <laughs> For a picky eater, a church potluck is either the best of times or the worst of times, but generally it is the worst of times because one of two things is bound to happen to a picky eater at a church potluck. First one is that you don't see anything that you like, and the second one, which is more likely to happen, is that if you do find something that you like, the plates are small and the juices from the foods run and touch and mix together. For some of you, you're like, what's the big deal? It's all going to the same place. But for a picky eater, the baked bean juices and the coleslaw liquid, those mingling together, that makes you squeamish. And so a picky eater desperately wants those sectioned out plates so that you can pick and choose what goes where so that nothing mixes together. And when you're eating and you're picking and choosing what you allow to touch on your plate, that can kind of make sense. But in the Christian life, when you start to pick and choose what parts of your life touch the new creation character that Colossians 3 has just been hammering home, that's a problem. You can try to, to hold back pieces of your life and convince yourself that this new creation character that Paul is talking to the Colossian church about, that it doesn't have any impact on, on this one section of your life, on these friendships or these relationships or with extended family. And so you can attempt to pick and choose where you allow this new creation character to transform your relationships. But this evening in Colossians chapter 3, just the end of the chapter, it reveals that that attitude that, that draws lines in the sand and says, this, this new character that Christ has given me, it isn't allowed to touch these relationships. We're not allowed to draw those lines in the sand because new creation character transforms the way that you treat every single human relationship. And so because you're a new creation in Christ, as a Christian, this new creation conduct, it transforms every single human relationship. And so in this passage, Paul highlights the two most challenging areas to live out this new creation character. The home and the workplace. And this is what we're going to see in the first portion of our text this evening. It's that your family life transforms with a new creation lifestyle. Now, when you're at home with your family, you don't have to save face in front of the public eye. And so the chinks in your, in your character, they have no place to hide. You have no place to hide from the relationships in your home. And so all the flaws of all the people, they collide and there's always a chance for an explosion. But even that, and what Paul is going to say even that explosion of all the character flaws of people in the, in the family colliding, that's not even a sufficient excuse to avoid putting on this new creation character that transforms family life. So let's look at these commands that Paul gives here in Colossians 3 about family life. The first one comes in verse 18, and it's that wives should willingly submit to their husbands. Look at the text, Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives... Submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. So notice here, the command is for wives to submit, not just to anyone, but specifically to their own husbands. But also notice, the text does not say, 
wives, you are below your husbands. I mean, actually the command to submit implies that there is this equal standing, and yet the wife willingly places herself under the authority of her husband. And it's not, a, not because of a lack of giftedness or ability or capacity. The command to submit simply conveys created order. This is what 1 Timothy 2 says, starting in verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For, what's the reason for this, Paul? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So this, this command that we see in Colossians 3, verse 18, it's a command that doesn't reflect inferiority, nor is it a command that espouses that the wife is less gifted than her husband. It's a command that reflects the order of creation. Adam first, Eve second. Not Adam better, Eve worse. It can't communicate that because if we look at this uh, with a theological perspective, Jesus submits to the Father. That submission doesn't carry the idea of inferiority, but rather placing oneself under the headship or authority of someone else. But unfortunately, our, our world has reacted incredibly strongly against this idea that Scripture is teaching here. It's the, the Christian teaching of complementarianism. So this, this husband and a wife, they have two different functions assigned by God, and yet they fit together perfectly to accomplish God's plan. And the world has reacted violently against that, oftentimes very loudly, but oftentimes very quietly and very subtly. For instance, when you get a wedding invitation, whose name typically goes first on the wedding invitation? The wedding of girl name, guy name. And I'm not saying this is some cardinal sin to, to put... The, the lady's name before the guy's name. It's the natural thing to do because the lady's family is typically planning the wedding. It just makes logical sense. But this happens all over the place. Very subtly, the world and Satan undermining these roots that God has built for order in the Christian home. And so our culture, they've, they've hijacked the beauty and the meaning of submission because they think that submission means that the husband has to domineer over the wife. And I heard a woman say this once before, that her husband doesn't very often come to her on, her knees, on his knees, but when he does, she has to tell him, get out from under the bed, you big baby. And it's a funny anecdote, but unfortunately, it reflects how many homes operate. The wife takes the lead, and the husband cowers underneath the bed. But Paul shows this radical reversal that should be inspired by this new creation character and conduct. That wives can willingly follow their husbands rather than simply charging ahead. And again, it's this, this idea of willingly putting oneself underneath the authority of someone else. So it looks like, like elevating your husband to have the final word or encouraging him to grow in his leadership, spiritual and otherwise, and during disagreements, it reasons rather than refuses. And we're like, how? No one just voluntarily wants to submit. How are we supposed to accomplish this? And this is where verse 19 complements this teaching perfectly. Because if husbands obey this next command, 
it makes it infinitely more easier for wives to submit and follow their husbands. This is the command of verse 19, that husbands can can love their wives completely. This is what Paul says. Colossians 3, verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And there are two components here that help a husband to love his wife. First one is understanding. The second one is leading. We find this idea of loving your wife through growing in your understanding of her in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me read the passage to you. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So Paul charges these, or Peter charges the husbands there to to grow in their understanding of their wives, to, to elevate them through the way that you treat them, talk to them, talk about them, and the consequences, if you don't, are rather severe, so that you're Prayers won't be hindered. There, there's this, this active curse that God says, I will put on your prayer life if you don't seek to understand your wife. I mean, talk about serious consequences. Now, someone said that attempting to grow in your understanding of your wife is impossible. It's like trying to understand what the color seven smells like. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I can't help you with that one. <laughs> <laughs> the impetus is on you, <laughs> is on you for that one. To, to draw her out with questions and acts of love, see needs and desires. And, and knowing those things helps you love and lead your wife better in a way that glorifies God. Uh, but husbands also love by, yes, growing an understanding of their wives, but also by leading. And we get this idea by looking at the, the inverse of verse 18. If the wife is supposed to submit well, then naturally the leadership has to fall upon the husband. And I don't think I need to explain what it means to lead your wife as part of your quest to love her well. Um, But I'll give you two pitfalls of leading and then give you a key word here. When a a husband is leading his wife, as someone said, there are are two very dangerous cliffs on either side of this, this narrow path. Two pitfalls that it's easy to fall off on either side of. The first one is the one that our world so desperately hates and tells the woman to to buck under the authority of any man. It's leading like a dictator. And the other one is leading like a doormat. So the husband who leads like a dictator, he rules with his iron fist. He doesn't listen to the counsel of his wife. He doesn't consider her feelings. He doesn't consider her needs. He cares about himself, his place of authority, and his family. But the other cliff, which, because our culture has so radically revolted to this, again, bad idea of a husband leading like a dictator, the one that most people naturally sway to now is leading like a doormat, or to say it differently, not leading at all, simply being a placeholder, a decoration, something to be trampled over. So out of, out of fear of, of crushing his wife or being called a bigoted, old-fashioned, Bible-thumping believer, he, he always defers to his wife. When this difficult decision comes his way, he, he defers. 
Because he hasn't risen to the call that God has put on his life, this call to lead his family forward. And he doesn't want to be responsible for making the difficult decision that needs to be made. He's a doormat. So the question is, how does a husband balance his leadership on this precarious knife's edge without falling into the danger of leading like a dictator or leading like a doormat? And there's a crucial word that is invaluable to incorporate into your vocabulary. Use it often. It's the very short word, let's. Let's is an invaluable word. Because as you use the word let's, you're fulfilling God's call to lead your wife while also reflecting that you are working together in this process. So we have the word let, that's the leading aspect, and us, we're a team. Let's spend some time praying together. Let's go away for the weekend so we can recharge. Let's invite so-and-so over for dinner. Let's do this together so we can be effective for Jesus. So by better understanding and leading your wife in these ways, you're loving her far better than any secular counsel in this world can enable you to do. And you're making it infinitely easier for your wife to follow the command of God in verse 18 to submit to her husband. But the opposite of this command is stated in the second half of verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Now, often the way this bitterness builds up in the heart of someone is, is a result of, and, and the role of husband and wife, the wife bucking under the authority of the husband. And typically, that indicates one of two things. You're leading like a dictator or you're leading like a doormat. And so when you sense this, this bitterness welling up toward your wife, growing in your heart, you say, I've been wrong, I, I think, in how I've been loving and leading you. My heart has actually been chafing against you because I, I think I was wrong. Do you forgive me and let's restore the beauty of this love, lead, submit relationship so that we can grow closer to God and to each other? And certainly, I, I am no marriage expert. But all of this is right here in the text. So don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. There, there's this beautiful counsel that we have to the Colossian church that, that wives submit to their husbands because God has this glorious plan for husbands to love their wives so well that they can lead and understand in a way that is easy to follow. And when mom and dad are on the same page, the next command in verse 20, the command to children, becomes easier for them to follow. Look at the text, Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And, and verse 20 is just communicating the idea that children can obey dutifully. And I know our demographic tonight, so I'm not going to belabor this point since that, well, really it's self-evident what the text is saying here. But just allow me to make a few comments. Do you see now the importance of 
new creation character having its effect on both mom and dad. Because if mom and dad are, are transformed by God's grace and they're re- fulfilling their responsibilities of submitting and loving and leading, then children truly can obey their parents in every item. But when mom and dad draw these lines in the sand and say that this, well, this work that God has done in my, in my heart, it shouldn't affect what happens at home. It doesn't get across the threshold from outside to inside. Then it becomes far more difficult for children to obey in every item because parents who haven't been transformed by the grace of God, they will ask outrageous things of their children. But the interesting thing here about the motivation behind this obedience to mom and dad is that the motivation doesn't come from pleasing mom and dad. Look at the second half of the verse. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. The motivation of wanting to obey mom and dad isn't to make them happy. It's to make the Lord happy. This is very interesting because this is exactly what Paul is going to say to employees, to servants as well. That the motivation to do what's right, it doesn't come from pleasing a person on earth. It has to come from pleasing God. So if kids truly want to obey their parents better, then mom and dad have to teach them to have a deep love for God, not for doing what's right when someone is watching them and will reward them. Children who want to please God, they inevitably obey their parents. But unfortunately, many parents live lives in private that are far different from the rosy lives they live in public. Dad might be this loving father at the baseball game, but when he's at home, it's a whole different story. So Paul adds in this this, uh, fourth command here for new creation conduct. It's in verse 21. And it talks about how parents, especially fathers, must deal gently with their children. Colossians 3, verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So Paul gives this charge to fathers. It applies to both mom and dad, but he specifically gives it to fathers, not to embitter, provoke, or stir up their children and discourage or exasperate them. Because Paul doesn't want these children who think they're living in a Christian home to see dad or mom's conduct outside the home and then see it inside the home and then be radically different and for the children to go, I hate that about you. You're not reflecting this transformation that Christ has made in your life. And many commentators have these very lengthy lists. I think the longest one I saw was, was 12 lists or 12 items of the way that parents embitter or discourage their children. Um, but most of the lists that I read, they, they boil down to the root cause of simply failing to listen. And so children, because of how they fear that their parents might respond to any criticism... They don't communicate their frustrations. And so parents don't listen, and they don't change. 
They don't have that honest feedback going into their life. Hey, hey, Dad, you do this outside the house, but when we get home, you act this way. And that bugs me. There's a story of a vacuum salesman. Uh, he was going door to door in a rural backwoods town. On his first day, he goes, I'm going to sell this vacuum no matter what it takes, no matter what protests are thrown my way. So he knocks on this door. This lady opens the door, says hello, and without even allowing her to take another breath, he barges right in and he says, ma'am, I'm going to sell you this vacuum cleaner uh, right here, right now. And she, she, again, is trying to get these protests out. And he says, no, no, I've got a great deal for you. You see this bucket of dirt? And he smears it on the hardwood floor. And he says, if my vacuum cannot vacuum up this pile of dirt, I'll eat it. Finally, able to get a word out, the woman says, sir, you better grab a fork because we don't have electricity. <laughs> oh, what would have happened if he had simply listened? Parents have to display to their kids that they will give them this gracious, listening ear rather than barging in like a salesman. Listening not only prevents problems, but it solves current problems. It, it's actually okay and even good to occasionally work through problems in front of kids. Certainly, there are many things that should be taken care of only behind closed doors. But you have to model and show to your kids that you are willing to have this gracious listening ear rather than reacting to problems and criticism. Because it, it enables you to build this, this trusting relationship that listens to and dialogues with children. But this is the scary thing. If the parent doesn't listen, dialogue, and parent the child, someone else will. And very often it's with disastrous results. And the stakes are just genuinely too high for, for parents to fail their children in that way, stirring up this resentment in their kids because they don't listen. And they end up surrendering this privilege of bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So you have to model this, this gracious ear, starting a conversation, instructing children to love Christ. Now, keep in mind, this text comes in the context of not building resentment in children, but this truth extends outside the home as well. Because when you barge in like a salesman, not listening to your friends, to your coworkers, it builds resentment as well when they feel like they can't ask you a question. They can't point out a fault in your life because they think you'll explode rather than responding with a gracious ear. But also this kind of gentleness towards children has to display uh, and impact the way that you discipline them. Unfortunately, discipline often comes from an angry heart rather than a tender heart. It says, you made my life miserable. You embarrassed me in public. You humiliated our family. So now I make your life miserable. And you don't ever do that again. And that kind of discipline is simply pragmatic and vindictive. 
there are many subsets of our culture that say, you know what, discipline is a good thing for kids. But without a biblical worldview behind it, they can never move beyond pragmatic discipline. It, it has to be pragmatic. There, there's no other reason to instill this, this character value in a child. But discipline within the Christian family, it can't simply be pragmatic. Although discipline is very practical. And it can never come from this vindictive or, or angry heart. So this, this gentleness, it, it has to be carried out in the way that you listen and, and the way that you discipline. But before we move on, let me just mention one more thing. If you look around our church, especially on Sundays, and you, and you keep your eyes open, it's, it's very easy to spot kids around here uh, between services, after the service, it's very easy to spot kids who are exasperated with their parents. I see it every Sunday. I watch our kids flock to voices other than their own parents to get advice, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And there are an abundance of voices that are wanting to pour into our kids and capture their hearts. But currently my greatest burden for our church is that the voice that captures their heart be the voice of Christ through the words and the actions of people in our church pouring into these exasperated kids. And, and if parents are going to fail their kids, then you need to consider your place. What is your place of coming alongside exasperated kids and also struggling parents and saying, come on, let's grow together. So this new creation character transforms your conduct inside the home, but it also must transform your conduct in the second most difficult place to keep your testimony, uh, which is at work. Would you look with me at the last couple of verses here in our text, starting in verse 22, we see that your work life transforms through a new creation lifestyle. For many people, work is an ugly part of life. Between difficult coworkers, harsh bosses, long hours, they're pressed, and when they're pressed, less than flattering traits are squeezed out of them. However, God says to the believer, new creation character, it has to come out even in difficult places, like home and like work. And so we see a series of difficult commands to follow here, and it starts in verse 22, that employees work diligently out of reverence for the Lord. Colossians 3.22, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So Paul starts out at, at the bottom of the totem pole by addressing these bondservants, or in today's society, they would be employees with this legally binding contract to stay with their boss. And generally, these, these types of servants or employees, they're well cared for, they're treated fairly. But Paul's instructions to servants and masters here in chapter 3 and the early part of chapter 4, they uh, seem to indicate not everything is well in Colossae. And so Paul's overarching command for these servants is obey. And once again, the motivation for this obedience, just as 
was the case with children. It's that there is the desire to bring honor and pleasure to God, not simply to their boss. And so rather than working only when being watched so that the boss thinks highly of them, they're to work diligently. And to provide ample motivation for this very difficult command to obey, obey in everything, Paul gives three added layers of motivation here. So first, notice with me in verse 23 that you work for Christ, not just your boss. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So Scripture says, ultimately, these employees, they, they don't work for their bosses. They work for Christ. Everything they do, everything, it isn't done because of the person they report to on earth. It's done because they serve a risen Savior who cares very deeply about how they manifest this new creation character. And that's why they work heartily or, or diligently. And then secondly, employees work for Christ who gives rewards. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Once again, Paul says, you serve the Lord Christ. So these servants in Colossae, they could work diligently. They could obey regardless of how well or how poorly their masters treated them. Because these servants or these employees could begin with the end already in mind. These servants were to start out with this mindset saying, it doesn't matter how he treats me. Because my work is to Christ, who's going to give me a reward for my faithfulness. They're supposed to consider that Christ would judge their conduct, and he would grant them a reward for their faithful obedience. And after all, their worth ethic and their obedience, it reflects what they think of Jesus, their, their true master. And then thirdly here, the last layer of motivation, well, if the positive didn't motivate these Employees, Paul says, maybe the negative will motivate you. You work for Christ, who not only gives rewards, but who renders judgment. Verse 25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. So these employees do not obey well, their earthly masters and their heavenly master. Christ promises not rewards, but judgment with total equity and fairness, because he doesn't look on status. He looks on faithfulness. So these employees are to diligently obey because they're working for Christ, who will either give a reward or will judge based on how new creation con conduct is manifested at work. The, uh, the summer before my junior year of high school, I was working with a, a, junior, a uh, general contractor. And the big project for the summer was this modern A-frame. It was set on a beautiful property. It had a private lake. The owner of the place was an engineer, which meant everything had to be perfect. And that project left a bad taste in my mouth all summer long. I started out by digging trenches for a week straight, and I spent the next week mixing concrete by hand. Even though we had a mixer, it, it left a bad taste in my mouth. And then the next week, I was laying out bags of concrete that had been ruined by rain and had cured, and I was marking out where this meandering driveway was going to go. And as I'm doing it, I'm getting tired, and I dropped this 80-pound bag of concrete on my middle toe and crushed it, and I had this terrible taste in my mouth. And the last week of summer came, 
And once again, I was working with more concrete at the top of the driveway with fence posts and mailboxes. And uh, when I finished, my boss told me to take the scrap pile filled with ruined concrete, which was at the very top of the driveway. I was to take it all the way to the bottom of the driveway. It would not have been a problem normally, but the driveway was over a half mile long. And there was a whole lot of concrete. And I had a bad taste in my mouth and a bad attitude. And so I picked up the concrete. I looked at the dumpster. I looked at the fence. And I chucked it over the fence into the trench and hoped that the weeds would cover it. And the weeds did cover it perfectly. But three months later, when the weather changed, the weeds no longer covered it. And I was thoroughly exposed for doing the bare minimum simply to cover my tracks, to please my boss, and I didn't work with this motivation to honor God by my conduct. And when you're a lazy people pleaser, the path of least resistance is to work hard only when you're being watched. But as a Christian, this is the reality. The boss is always around. Because <laughs> your work, ultimately, it's an act of worship to Christ. So if you say later when you mean never, or if you dream big but do little, or if you work hard to enable your laziness, all of those are signs that maybe you're a people pleaser, not someone who actually fears God's value of how you are doing your work. And contrary to popular belief, work isn't a dirty word. <laughs> it's this gift from God, and our work is to be a gift to God. So when you lose this motivation to work well because no one's looking, you honor God by remembering who you actually work for and that he's always looking. Or when you gain motivation because you are being watched and you want that raise or that promotion, you honor God by remembering you work for Christ who gives a far greater reward. Because your work, it's not ultimately for you and for your well-being. It's ultimately this avenue to glorify God and evidence new creation character that he has transformed within you. Very interestingly, Paul gives great attention to how these employees are to obey their, their masters or their bosses, but he only gives masters one verse. We can summarize it this way. Bosses who are manifesting new creation character, they recognize the true nature of their role. Bosses recognize their role. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Masters. Give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Just look at the, the last half of this verse first. It's teaching this idea. Bosses are not the top of the ladder. Christ is. Hey, hey, bosses, you think you're high and lifted up here on earth, but just like your employees, you also have a master. He doesn't sit in a swivel chair. He sits on a throne. And when you recognize that, that business isn't your own, but it's a tool in Christ's hands, well, Paul says it should change everything. 
means business isn't any longer just about profits, but it's about people and using your resources to advance the cause of Christ. And when you realize that, it leads to a transformation of how you treat your employees. And bosses aren't at the top of the ladder. Christ is, which means that you can treat your employees fairly. Right? Work should never be done for free. It should be appropriately compensated. I mean, that extends all the way down to car wash fundraisers. I mean, the sign might say free car wash. But when someone performs a service for you, you compensate them. I mean, even when a friend offers to help you out for free, you can still consider the idea of paying them for the service that was willingly offered. And this all stems from the idea of considering how Christ treated you. And you treat others who are under you with that same kind of care. Christ's care for you was care that came when you were totally against him. So how much more should a boss care for those who are working to make him successful? It's rewarding diligence with recognition. Celebrating success publicly with staff, not just with executives. Because bosses, they're not the top of the food chain. They have a Lord who reigns on high, who treated them far better than they deserved. That should motivate them to treat those below them fairly as well. God's call for you to grow in this new creation character, it doesn't allow us to keep those values from intersecting in various spheres of our life. It all has to mingle together. New creation character, it, it transforms every human relationship, even the hardest ones in the home and at work. At home, husbands, they can love and they can lead while wives support and, they, and children obey. And at work, employees, they can be diligent and bosses can treat them fairly. And every relationship that we have on earth, it can change because of the work that Christ has done. We kill sin, we put on new creation values, and we live in a way that honors God in every relationship. So here's the question. Are you going to submit to, call, to God's call in your life, both in the home and outside of it? Would you stand with me here as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it addresses the, the good, the bad, the ugly, the easy, and the hard. Lord, this is one of those passages where it, if we come with come to it in good conscience, it's almost impossible to escape and say, you know what, I, I, I think I'm set in all those areas. And sometimes it can be brutal coming to this passage. But Lord, would you help us in each of these areas to seek your grace as we grow in the way that new creation character transforms our lives. You would help us to live it out even in the toughest relationships. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.